Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends, your family, and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, David Temple, is a friend of mine who has a tenacious spirit and raw talent. He's created a prolific body of work in a variety of media and now in what he refers to as his third chapter of life, he sets out to create even more content. David is an emerging crime thriller author. The Imposter is his seventh book and the second in the Detective Pat Norelli series, the first being titled The Poser. David plans to take Norelli to the next level in a third book sometime later this year. His novel includes the standalone psychological thriller Devour, his three-book Carter Matheson series, which includes Knuckle Down, Behind the Eight Ball, and Lucky Strikes. His standalone family drama, Chasing Grace, was made into a film that David wrote, produced, directed, and starred in. You can watch it on Netflix and Amazon Prime, and it is in over 100 countries worldwide. The success and life that Dave enjoys today is just another phase of his lifelong journey. From my perspective, like his books, Dave's life is a bit of a thriller. Listen in and enjoy. David Temple, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire, my friend. Gosh, we were just talking offline that we have not caught up for quite some time. So I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Author, movie maker, so much to talk about. So uh, how are you doing, David? I'm so good. It's so good to see you. It has been. We were doing the math. It's got to be five, maybe six years at least. The good news is, is that I kind of can creep you on social media, which I, I determined isn't really creeping because you're you're pretty out there, at least uh, where I follow you, which is primarily Twitter. And I know you do some other stuff. But uh, anyways, all I can say is it's good to chat with you. Good to catch up. I'm looking forward to this conversation because, man, oh, man, have things changed for you over the years that I've known you? 
Yeah, and I got to tell you, when you when we were reaching out to each other, I I think it was probably Twitter dropping a message. I was just really uh, I had been following million uh, everyday millionaire, and I thought, man, you you get better every single season or every single episode. And I thought I'm just going to tell him that I miss him and that he's doing great. So when we reconnected and you asked me, I'm yeah. usually on that end of the bargain. <laughs> uh, I was like, wow, okay, I'm all in, especially if it's you. Well, so good to see you. So thanks for that. And uh, yeah, I'm excited about having the conversation with you because really, you know, when we look about the journey of people's lives and the journey of what it is they're doing to achieve their dreams, I mean, you've come from the background that you've had, which I want to talk a little bit about. And now you're an mm -hmm. author many times over. You're an author of some really cool books and characters and like you're doing some really amazing stuff. Plus, you're an actor, movie producer. Gosh, like I feel like I'm in the, you know, I really I'm in stardom world right now. I'm a little bit starstruck. Well, I'm um, the same guy you met many years ago. And, <laughs> and while it's very kind, I do appreciate it. You know what? I'm one of those guys that just I I knew early on what I wanted to do. The path shifted a little bit every once in a while. And when it didn't go my way, I simply shifted it again. But I I've always had, I think, a combination of short attention span and really big goals. And that has always worked for me. Uh, good, bad, or indifferent. And yeah, I'm chasing a lot of dreams. And a lot of those dreams are coming true every week. That's I'm pretty so cool. excited. So let's give our listeners a little bit of a background. Okay, so let's let's start where you are today, which in my world, author writing another book, how many books is this for you? I just published my eighth one week ago, uh, one week ago Thursday. And uh, that was my eighth that was the second book in a thriller series yeah. of a female detective, uh, Pat Norelli. I had done a military thriller series before that, three in that. And then uh, a couple of family dramas, the very first book of which I turned into a film. But let's go back to today. So, uh, I, yeah, somebody asked me today, I was at the gym and they said, how do you feel about having just released this one? I said, pretty good. They said, are you, are you, this is really interesting. Uh, Sue said, are you depressed? I'm like, why? She goes, well, because all this time and work and energy that you've used to create on this book, it's all over. I'm like, well, no, I'm not depressed at all. A, book sales are going through the roof. And B, uh, I've already started the next book because you can't sit around and rest on the accolades of the former book, you got to start your next one. So, well, okay. So tell me a little bit about the business of book writing. Now, are you self-published? Have you got a publisher? Are you on what some would refer to as the uh, treadmill of having to produce a book for the, the publisher? Give me a little bit of background in that. And it's not that I know a lot about it. I know probably just a little bit or enough to get myself in trouble asking dumb questions or something, but give me a little bit of background in that, David. First of all, there are no dumb questions and ask away. Uh, second of all, uh, I am self-published. I've been self-published since my very first one was 2009. Uh, that's when Kindle and that whole world was just starting to kind of take off. I didn't know anything about it, and it's all self-taught. So it, from from uh, de designing the book layout to the cover to the table of contents to getting it printed to getting it published out there in the marketplace. So I'm self-pub. Now, this next book I am using as the springboard to go for an agent. And, and, and here's, here's why I say that. There are a lot of, there are two camps. There's clearly the camp that says self-publishing is the only way because 
Mm-hmm. The five, the big seven became the big five, and it's on its way to becoming the big three. It's just a matter of time. So it's very daunting, very difficult to get into that world. However, somebody's got to be there. It might as well be me. Sure, of course. Um, but, but I did tell myself, there's a Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book uh, about the theory of 10,000 hours, needing 10,000 hours roughly to master a particular craft. When I lived in Los Angeles, there's a saying that it takes about 10 years to make it in Hollywood. And I started really hitting it right about that time. So I told myself it's gonna take me 10 books to get to where I feel comfortable that I've really kind of worked out the kinks and really spent the work and the research, honing, pacing and dialogue and, and voice. And at that point I was gonna go for an agent. So this next one, which is going to be a complete departure and a brand new character in a brand new world will be my new character. And because you met me uh, when I was coming off of different shades of showbiz, there's a saying that you write what you know, and this next book is going to be writing about what I know, which is showbiz, particularly radio, because I was a radio host yeah. for more time in my professional life than anything else. Well, let's talk a little bit. About, I want to go back on your books a bit. I get the timelines mixed up with, uh, is it Lucky Strike and Chasing Grace? Those are, because those were early on, were they not? Yeah, that, that guy, great memory. Uh, Chasing Grace was originally Discovering Grace. That was my very first book. And that was... Uh, that was when I was just trying to see, do I have the goods to do it? Right. So I wrote that book as an homage to my parents. My father's was passed away. He's a minister and my mother just passed away. And so it's an homage to the life that I was brought up in, which mm-hmm. is family and so forth. Mm-hmm. After that, there was a particular character in the book, Carter Matheson, that everyone resonated with so much that I spun him off into a military thriller series. Oh. And that was Lucky Strikes, Behind the Eight Ball, and Knuckle Down. And then, as I'm into my, I don't know, fifth or sixth book, uh, I reconnected with an old friend and we said, let's go make a movie. I'd been making shorts right, left, and center, but I said, let's go make a feature-length film. And that's when I, and we were talking about what script it would be. I'm like, well, I'd really like to turn that first book into a movie and see if we can do that. Yeah. So I raised the money, uh, which took a while. And then I produced it, directed it and started in it. And that's now on Netflix, Amazon prime, and in about 119 countries around the world. Wow. That's going to make you feel really good. Yeah. Especially since it was for my parents. And like I said, my mother recently passed away and that was probably one of her proudest moments mm. and she's in the film so it was uh really sweet and it was just before her health started to decline i mean i literally got patrick i got like the last couple of her best weeks before she got sick that's so so good to hear sorry to hear about your mom yeah uh so great that she was able to see it come to fruition and uh, that's yeah. got to, I'm sure that makes you feel really great about that, at least. And there's some completion there. So I want to ask Absolutely. you a fundamental question because you're self-published. Uh-huh. Then you went out and made a freaking movie. Now, there, this isn't Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. This is, you're in the grind. You're doing shit. You're trying to get things done. You're, you know, and there's a, there's a price to pay for that. And I'm, and I'm curious for you, you know, because 
to me, writing a book, doing a movie is no different than, you know, being an entrepreneur and, and trying to get a business going. I mean, ultimately, that's what you're doing. I mean, it, it comes in the world of creativity and writing a book, and, but it's all just work to, you know, to, to get your, your product out there. We'll call it product. And I'm not trying to minimize it or any of that. It's, but that's it. the basics of it. So, but that's a long grind. And so do you love what you do so much that it doesn't feel like that work? Yeah, I couldn't have said it any better because let's go back to discovering grace. So I wrote that in 09. I published it in 10. It really kind of started selling in 11. Right around 13, I started thinking about a film. So I try, I turned it into a screenplay in 13. So I had to teach myself how to write screenplays. Mm. So in, then in 14, I started raising money. In 15, we shot it. In 16, it basically debuted. And now here it is 21. And it's really kind of enjoying better success. So as you can see, it takes forever. And on top of that, when it was time to raise the money, and of course, my business partner at the time, who was my director of photography, said, um, okay, so uh, let's do your movie, but you're going to go after raise the money. And I'm like, I had never done that. Uh, and I thought, well, all anybody can do is say no. And I've kind of always worked on that premise. So I asked one person, and this is funny, you'll probably get this because you're in, in the finance world, you've been around that, mm -hmm. is everyone loves to uh, bet on an underdog after everyone has already queued up. <laughs> so yeah. so guy number two, guy number one said, hey, listen, when you get guy number two, come back to me and I'll, I'll, I'll pony up. So sure enough, that's exactly how it happened. And it was just, you know, it was 50 grand at a time, at a time. And it just, until I got enough budget to start shooting. Mm -hmm. And this is where you find out what you're made of. So you're casting and and I'm, I'm scouting locations and I'm doing all the things as though we're already into production, hoping that I can get more money and uh, got a little bit more, started shooting, hoping we'd get a little more money to finish it, kept shooting finished, hoping I could get a little more money to do the final edit. And that's how it, how it end. Uh, and that's how it goes. And yes, it's relentless work. And, and a side note, a uh, big props to my lovely wife, Tammy. She came on board way after this whole machine was built. So when she stepped in, there was, and I'm just going to make it this way, there, there were some legal challenges. Mm -hmm. There were a few uh, disgruntled investors who mm. weren't seeing things happen quite as quickly as they had hoped. <laughs> so this is starting to sound a lot like some real estate deals that I'm aware of. Okay, so keep going. <laughs> There's a exactly. crossover so here. <laughs> I'll make, yeah. So they... Um, they, some of them went their merry way. I bought some of them out. The people that stuck around, of course, benefited better. And so, she, but she was, look, Patrick, you know me. I'm all right brain. I'm super creative, high level thinker, meaning 50,000 foot view. She is spreadsheets and Excel and uh, uh, protocols and yeah. methodologies. Yeah, she's she, and she loves that, and she's so good at it, which is why we're such a perfect bond because she gets it and I don't. Yeah, like I, I'm the guy that I don't, I don't, I don't, I can't tell you how to go 
I mean, I can tell you how to go raise the money, but that's not my forte, Mm -hmm. but I can create a story based on your life out of thin air and paint the entire universe. Uh, I can do that all day long. So yeah, it's, it ain't easy. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a long journey, but I always like to get into some of the background of it. You know, where did this creativity start to show up for you now? You know, because there's two parts to it. There's number one, the creativity of writing and producing, directing, photography, all the things that go with it. And then there's the entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, where did that all show up for you? Was it kind of, did you come out of the shoot that way? Was that something that your parents, uh, in, in terms of their background, how did David end up where you are today in just terms of your view? Well, great question. Uh, my parents, I grew up in a really strict Christian home, which is why I am intrinsically so messed up. Um, <laughs> but they while they wanted me to follow certain rules and lead a certain kind of path, um, they also, which sounds contradictory, but it isn't, they also said, chase your dreams. Mm -hmm. They're your dreams, chase them, go for it. And they never said, chase them as long as they're this big. Or you can chase them as long as they don't go too far. They Mm -hmm. never said that. My dad was really... uh, the guy who said, go out there and get it. And my mother, super creative, photographer, artist, writer, and so uh, practically a librarian. So I grew up around books and I was, I painted as a child and I took music and I played instruments. So Mm -hmm. that was always fostered. So as time went on, uh, it's this one of my favorite stories to tell about sixth grade when every, every other guy in school is, you know, talking like this, <laughs> uh, my voice changed and it went right to where it is today. Wow. Like f- between fifth and sixth grade. And yeah. I was a little bit of a freak. So at that point, I just knew something clicked. I would watch TV and I would see the guys who were doing the bumpers on the uh, the trailers for movies and so forth. And I'm like, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. Wow. I want to, I want to be in radio and I want to do voiceovers. And this was sixth grade. And I'm like, I'm going for it. That's all there is to it. And it's one of the few things in my whole life that I just absolutely focused, held it, and wouldn't take no for an answer. And that launched that whole career. I mean, I had my first radio show when I was still in high school at a little dinky radio station. Mm -hmm. But as soon as I graduated, I upgraded to another, the number one news talk station in town. And then it just went from there. And I've got great stories covering 25 years of radio so now did you now did you travel i mean did you travel the u.s doing radio like did you kind of go from state to state were you really kind of state bound what was your kind of world no my very first radio station was in the town i grew up in which is lynchburg virginia i mean it's (laughs) tiny little town yeah yeah and I went to Virginia Beach from there, where I was actually work, getting my master's degree and working as a producer for an international news station. And I had a part-time radio job while working on my master's degree. I've always been kind of that guy. And I was finishing my master's work, still doing a weekend reporter for traveling the globe for TV reporter, but uh, I could not shake radio. And even after I, I graduated with my master's, I kept the radio job there in Virginia Beach and the, the the pivotal, the tipping point, 
that launched my career. I was doing a nighttime show on a, on a top 40 station and the afternoon guy went golfing and asked me if I would cover for him. And I covered for him and halfway through the show, I got a call on the hotline that said, uh, this is uh, so-and-so from Detroit and I wanna talk to you about offering you a job. And I'm, I'm, I was sure I was being punked. Yeah. Long story short, he flew, flew me to Detroit, offered me a job afternoon show in Detroit, number six market in the country, and I was off to the races. Wow. Is the afternoon drive, is that afternoon drive home, is that better than morning drive to work? What? Because what, radio guys are always, you got, you know, I'm a morning guy, I like my morning DJs, but, you know, I know afternoon drive home is also popular. I'm just curious, random thought, but. Well, yeah, yeah, no, no, it's a great question. Uh, Detroit, I started out at afternoons and I crushed it so well that they were uh, one of the mo- the morning guys who was retiring, so I snagged the morning show. Yeah, and then the program director that found me in in Virginia Beach was going to Chicago, and this is where that nomadic lifestyle goes. He goes, listen, I'm going to Chicago at the top top forty station in town. I want you to go with me. He said, I can't get you in the mornings, but will you take afternoons? And I'm like, afternoons, by the way, Patrick, is the best of all things. You know why? You don't get ready for work until like noon. You're rolling around one o'clock. You're on the air at two. You're still having cocktails by seven thirty. Sure, it's the best life ever. However, mornings is the top dog. So I did uh, afternoons in Chicago. Went to the morning show, and then the crosstown competitor wanted me and offered me more money. So I went crosstown at a morning show, and after five winters in Chicago. Love Chicago, hate the winter. I went to, I just packed up and I said, I'm going to LA because that's where I'd always wanted to live. And um, and in LA, did the acting voiceovers and kind of landed a great little sweet gig at uh, Westwood One Radio Networks and the Armed Forces Radio Network. They simulcast on uh, satellite radio. This is before XM Series. So you're you're doing all this radio stuff. Radio was a big thing back then. So you know you're doing well. I'm assuming you're doing quite well back then. At least you've you know from a from a profile point of view, you're the real deal, and you got things going on. And as you're pursuing those dreams, you know it's one of those dreams that's a little bit what's the word? I don't know what the word is. That is, it's kind of out there. It's not like well, I want to be you know the best uh, electrician in the world, or I don't want to be you know I'm going to be a police officer or uh, uh, you know a nurse. I, you know I'm going to do radio. And but you were saying earlier on that 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 was your focus. How is that when you're sharing that with friends and family? That's my goal. This is what I want to do for a living. How is it for dream killers? You get a, you get some dream killers with that kind of a goal. Here's the dark side of being that focused is. Because I had such specificity with which I dreamed, and let me tell you this very specific thing, I was still in high school and I said, when I really formulated the goal of what I wanted, I said, before I'm 40, I wanna be in at least five of the top 10 radio markets in the world. Because I always knew that, my dad had this great saying, he goes, son, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. Mm Brilliant. Brilliant. So I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make the target. The worst I can do is not make that target, but maybe the best I can do is the next target. But I've always aimed straight for the top. It's, I'm like, if you're going to get out of bed and aim at some freaking target, why not aim at the, the one you want? Mm-hmm. So 
That's what I wanted. And along the way, the dark side of that, along the way, there are going to be some people that are not going to be happy with you, mm-hmm. usually in the form of girlfriends. <laughs> so when you roll into a city, I'll never forget this. I roll into Detroit. Now, Detroit has a lot of great things. But in the mid 80s, Detroit was not where I wanted to end up. Let's put it that way. Sure. I knew it was a great stepping stone. And so I'll never forget this. I didn't even unpack my boxes. They sat in my dining room table and I said, all I need to do is put in about maybe 12 months, 18 months. And uh, it lasted, I think it lasted 14 months and I was off to Chicago. So, Mm. uh, but my point is there were a lot of women along the way who said, but, but I love you. Yeah. And I really, really like you too, but I'm going this way and you're staying here unless you want to go with me. Yeah. No. All right. So you're out. So, you know, I'm always, I'm, I'm always, I guess, interested in, in somebody with that much clarity because, you know, as a coach and doing the work that I've done for so many years, I'm often coming in, into conversations with people that, you know, when you start to ask them a little bit about what they're, you know, what they're looking for, what their goals are, what do they want life to be about? The most common answer, to be honest with you, is I don't know. You know, I, I don't know what I want. I just, I'm not just, I'm just not happy or I'm not making enough money or I need more, but there's no clarity. So when I occasionally, and you're like a rarity of individuals that I've talked to with that much focus from that early on. So that's why I'm, wow. I'm wondering it sounds more like nature than nurture, but it sounds like nature that was nurtured. In other words, you know, you had the dreams, you expressed the dreams. Mom and dad said, you rock those dreams because uh, we're behind you. And so there's a, a combination of uh, things that I, I'm sure went on. But it sounds like, so you had that uh, that kind of fork in the road. You stand in for somebody, you know, you get the call. That's cool. But what about on the film side of it? Was film always there or did that kind of evolve later on? All right. First of all, uh, back to the radio thing, um, even though I went to grad school to get a master's, it ended up being in broadcast management because okay. somewhere along that line, I, I thought to myself, OK, maybe on the I'm going to hedge my bets on the off chance that the industry shifts. I'm going to have a great fallback that involves my ability to talk the business and be a producer, meaning talent. And I'm pretty good in sales. So I I mean, I know how to bring people to a solution. And I thought broadcast management would be great. However, by the time I finished my degree, and it only took me two years, and I aced that and did my boards and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, this isn't really what I thought it was, but I have it now. P.S. Because I'm I, I'm I'm a little bit guilty of plan B and plan C. I thought worst case scenario, I just go screw it. And I can always teach with a master. So because I my sister was a teacher, my dad was a teacher. I knew that um, I could always do that. So I keep going. I, I bounce on the degree and I keep staying with radio because that's just what I wanted. But I knew that about let's see. This is uh, uh, by the time. So I went from Detroit to Chicago, Chicago to LA. In LA, I was doing satellite radio. Now, let me tell you the difference between satellite radio, which is not what you hear today, mm-hmm. and terrestrial radio, regular radio. Yeah. If I'm on the radio in Los Angeles, 
I'm broadcasting. I was on 180 stations around the country, around the world, 180 markets, I'm sorry. So if I'm talking in Los Angeles and I'm simultaneously talking East Coast, or I was in overseas at one time, you have to talk in generalities. Very, very general. You can't even say, hey, we'll see you downtown tonight. Yeah. Well, uh, there may not be a downtown in that town, and there you may not be in that time zone. So here's my point, so I don't wonder. That no longer interested me. Plus, I saw the radio consolidation on the horizon. I saw what the, the big companies were doing. They were gobbling up all the little guys. And that's when I said, okay, I've only got probably a short window to really grab this dream by the balls and keep going. Now, coincidentally, because I'm answering two questions at once, while I was working on that satellite radio, my wife loves this story because my attention span again, <laughs> I would be doing a generic show, but I would run down the hall and pick up my uh, secretary's IBM Selectric, come into the studio and sit there and write short stories to fulfill the other half of my brain. And I was just, I would write a story, say to myself, write a story a day. And I would just stick them in an envelope. And I said, one day I'll, I've always liked that idea. One day it's going to work. So then um, my boss at the time went, had a chance to go to New York. And he said, listen, this is a chance of a lifetime. Do you want to go to New York? And I'm like, I can be packed in 15 minutes. And that, that was the pinnacle. And I had now achieved, had now crossed off five of the top 10 markets, and I was 38 years old. Mm. So I'm like, mission accomplished. So by the time I finished there, I could do anything I wanted to. And uh, it just so happens that later, right about that time, that's when all the markets started to crash, meaning the, the, the CDS radios were buying all the competition inside a major city. So I would walk into a show, into a city, and one company would own five radio stations. So you've taken away competition, which is deathly uh, for competitors like me. You've vanillaized, watered down. Well, I'm going to go back to competition. You guys are all working for the same guy and there's no, no real competition and you're just plugging and playing. And then what became insult to injury. This is when I saw the right on the wall and this was... Um, I'm out. A guy walks in from a small market, got something to prove, says, why am I paying you all this money when I can hire four guys to do your job and I can take all four of those guys and get them to two, do two jobs each? Now, my wife loves this part because I said, knock yourself out. Mm -hmm. And he did. And I was fired. And that was it. <laughs> of course. Okay, a couple points there. Number one, you had set that goal, 38 years old, you kind of hit it. Was it everything you cracked up, it was cracked up to be? Was it everything you dreamt it would be? Was it what you, did it really go, that was cool, great ride? It was everything I dreamt it to be, and then some. It, it really, really was. It was a ton of cash. It was a lot of the spotlight. <laughs> it was, I hung out with all the country stars that you can shake a stick at, rock stars, mainly country stars, because when I was doing that in that L.A., New York thing, that was when hot country was really big, and I was one of the guys. And yeah, it was balls out fun. It, okay, you mentioned something about having a price. There was a price to pay. Mm -hmm. It is not easy. 
it is it is beyond cutthroat. You know, my work days started at three thirty to be able to get to the station at four thirty to go on the road uh, on the air at five thirty. You'd work on the show until ten, do other stuff until noon, maybe have a couple of meetings in the afternoon, go home. Hopefully, you can get a nap. Sorry, the one thing I can't control is is my dog. And then, you know, and then you would have to go out and wine and dine the clients who were in town to do the rock, you know, the concerts that night. So you might not get in until, you know, 10, 30, 11, 30 at night and you're up at 330. Yeah. So it kicks you in the face a little bit. Yeah. So let me, okay. So this may get a little deep, a little esoteric, not sure, but let me ask you the question anyways. Okay. We've had the chance, you know, we, you and I, we've broke bread. We've had some beers together and yeah. and I've spoke with you. You know, you're you're a pretty humble guy. Like, you know, you're now I don't know if that come, came with maturity. So I go back to what you're talking about, you know, rock stars and country stars. And I mean, that's a world of not always, but that's often a world of egos. And how does it look and all the things that go with it? How did you adjust for that? Were, were you can you look back and go, no, I was just in it. You know, my egos was as big as everybody else's. And I, that's just what was, which is sometimes just human evolution, you know, our own personal development side of things. What was it for you back then, given where you are today, when you look back and go, who is that David? Who is that 38-year-old, that 35-year-old, that 30-year-old that was talking to rock stars and country stars? Uh, well, first of all, I, I think because my dad was a preacher and a teacher and a chaplain, and he was mm. always in the limelight, I learned very soon you know, as a PK, a preacher's kid, you're yeah, required PK. to... A PK, okay, you guys have your yeah. own language. It's, um, I was a PK. Okay, oh, yeah, got yeah. It. Okay, got it. <laughs> yeah, so That's I was great. a PK. When you're a PK, you're, you're always, I always say this, you're always living in a fishbowl mm. because you're always being examined by everybody in the church. Mm. On top of that, you're being told how to act and what to do and how not to act and what not to do, right? So it's really uh, not easy. Yeah. So when you finally break out, what's the number one thing that a guy like me is going to do? I'm rebellious by nature. So I'm going to pretty much do what I'm going to friggin' do. Yeah. And with that, when you get the amount of success that I got kind of quickly, I mean, there are guys my age who spent their entire career dreaming of radio and never got out of their town. Mm -hmm. So when you get this kind of success, you know, it does go to your head. By the time I hit New York, I thought I was pretty hot shit. I don't think I was. It's not like I thought I was the best jock in the world, but I knew that there was one one thousandth, one ten thousandth of a, of a percentage of people who could at that time do what I was doing. Yeah. Howard Stern and all those guys. Sure. But it's so competitive and there's only so many chairs to sit in. Mm -hmm. So you knew that if you had made it there, you had what it took. Mm -hmm. And I knew I had what it takes. And uh, I never took it for granted, but I probably took advantage of some of the notoriety. Now, I, fortunately, I never got into a lot of the bullshit that people uh, get into. Drugs were rampant then. And of course, you knew about payola. And, sure. you you know, I could look the other way a couple of times and you could become very wealthy. Yeah. But that's never been my thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I was full of it. I, and I think about the time that I got. So I did this climb 
And then uh, just about the time my mom was getting sick, I moved back home to my hometown. Well, where everybody had moved to in North Carolina, and I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna hang out and kind of look out after her, but because uh, I'd had enough money saved up and blah de blah. And she got kind of sick, and I said, well. If I'm going to be here, I, I got to do something and I got to do what I do. So I walk in this radio station. I said, look, I'm going to be here for the summer, probably a long summer. And uh, just let me come in and just bang out a few hours on the weekend because I'm going to go stir crazy. The guy says, I know who you are. I used to listen to your show on the satellite network, blah, blah, blah. I'll hire you right now. And I'm like, uh, I'm not going to be here that long. Let's just do weekends. He goes, no, 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 no. I'll give you afternoon drive. What do you want? Okay, well, if you're gonna ask, this is what I want, this is what I want, this is what I want. And he said, you got it. And so that kept me there for a couple of years. But it was that in that town that that guy came into me who had come from nowhere, some dinky little town and said, why am I paying you when I could this? Yeah. And I was coming, I was coming from the New York, LA, Chicago showbiz, the way I dressed, the cars I drove, the homes I had, I just moved in that world because that's what I was. But I'm living in North Carolina, which is, you know, fine. I love it. It's my home birth state. But I'm like, dude, keep up. And I didn't fit into his plan or what he thought I should be. And that's when he fired me. And I'm like, okay, now I am 100% officially out. And I walked away and I didn't even turn on the radio for about 10 years after that. You did a lot. You accomplished a lot. Did you have a specific or specific mentors along the way? David, like, were you, who was being your guide? Were you checking in with dad every so often, mom, you know, or others in the industry? Kind of who was, who was, or are you just going by your gut? You're flying by the seat of your pants and you're figuring shit out. There was a lot of gut. I mean, I've, I've always, I've always been driven by my gut. I, I haven't always made the best choices, especially when it comes to certain people. Mm -hmm. I've brought people into my world that I thought were one way. And they turned out to be another, and that has disappointed me. But we're all big boys, and we're responsible, and we move on. My dad was a humongous influence in my life. Now, he passed away. I mean, I'm now two years older than he was when he passed away. He passed away at 56. But yeah, he just, you know, he was he was the salt of the earth, dry wit, grounded, never took himself too seriously. And, you know, said things like, you know, aim at nothing, you'll hit every time. Don't forget there's always somebody behind your back waiting to get ahead of you. Keep your eye on the prize. If you fall down, get back up, keep going, things like that. And then I had I had some really, really great bosses along the way. One in Chicago, one in L.A. that grounded, driven, professional guys who just said, you've got what it takes, just keep your nose right there and don't take your eye off of it. And they were great mentors. So yeah, I've had I've had some really good ones. You know, life is often a series of forks in the road and some forks in the road, and, and more for some people than other. And, and for some, no forks in the road. It's just like, this is where I am. This is where I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to play it out this way. You've had, you know, at least, you know, the fork in the road. I, I hear a couple in your story. Uh, you know, first of all, you know, certainly Detroit was one of those forks in the road. And 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 then, of course, the guy coming in and going, why should I, you know, why should I keep you around kind of thing? What are some of the forks in the road that really stand out that defined where you are today? When you look back in hindsight and go, I could have gone left or I could have gone right. 
I don't know where I would have gone left, but because I went right, here I am. And this is what happened. Are those any standout for you? Because I look at decision to, you know, when I hear somebody say, well, you know, I decided I'm going to write a thousand words a day or I'm going to write a story a day or whatever framework you gave to that. I mean, that's a huge discipline. And then something shows up to do, you know, to where that shows up as an opportunity. So what are those forks of the road for you? All right. I've got a couple came to my mind, but I'm going to tell you my favorite fork. And it came when I met Tammy. Mm. Now, and keep in mind, when I met Tammy, which is its own story that you you don't have enough time for. It's a really sweet romantic story. And especially for some guy like me, who's was a confirmed bachelor. I was going to be a bachelor my whole life. I, I had, I knew how to maneuver in that world and it was fine with me. But then I met her and I was like, damn, well, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. And she is just the most remarkable person I've ever met. She's she is pure magic, but here's the point. So I don't get all weepy or something. When we came together and it was a whirlwind romance, whirlwind. I mean, from the time we met to the time we started talking and then I left Charlotte and moved in with her in New York was something less than six months. Mm. But when I rolled into New York, having already been there, I knew the ropes. She was working for Dwell Magazine as an executive, corporate executive. And she said, hey, curiosity, because you could you could get back into radio if you wanted to, and I'm like, or you could continue TV, or you could stay acting, uh, which I had been doing a lot in the South because Atlanta was taking off. She goes, but if you could do anything, just sky's the limit. I said, writing. Mm. She goes, oh. I said, that's what I want to do. I said, and I'm going to go at it with the same tenacity that I did with radio because this is what I want. It's who I am. It's it's I'm it's hardwired into me. I can no more. Not, look, Patrick, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I'm fantastic or the best writer or the greatest grammarian or I'm not saying any of that. But I know how to tell a story, mm. and I know how to engage you and pull you in and keep you at least for 300 pages. <laughs> and if you don't. If you don't stay with me for 300 pages, then I haven't done my job and maybe I should do something else. But she said to me, what would it be? And I like writing. She said, okay, how about this? So that you can completely focus. Why don't you just take the next year and see what you can do? And then we'll figure it out after that. All right. And I just went at it like I always do. And I wrote, that's when I wrote um, Knuckle Down, takes place in Manhattan I traveled all over Manhattan every single day. A different coffee shop or restaurant was my office. And eight hours a day, I'd sit my ass in that chair and bang. And on a rainy day, when you weren't feeling it, you still sit in the chair and you still do it because that's how you do it. And I hammered and I hammered and I hammered. And at the end of the year, when we decided to pick up and move west, I had a book. And the book is to this day, one of my favorites. And then, and it was having enough success. She says, what do you want to do now? I said, I want to keep doing this. This is my next chapter, my third chapter. And I said, I'm going to go at this with everything I have. And I'm not going to stop until I'm New York Times bestseller. And it's always been that. And I'm about five o'clock every day. And I'm in that chair between 5.30 and 6. And I write until about noon. I used to write until about five, but that'll kill you. <laughs> and I've been doing it one book after another. And yeah, I have gotten back into voiceovers, thus the 
swanky little voiceover booth behind me. Yeah. And um, doing audiobooks and trailers and training modules for clients. But Patrick, there's nothing in the world. Now, keep in mind, radio is my number one favorite love of all time. But there's nothing in the world like sitting down and crafting a world out of thin air and creating these people to tell stories and writing dialogue as though they're sitting there right in the room with you, which is bizarre and woo-woo as this sounds. I People look at me like I'm insane, but I'm like... A lot of it's kind of like I'm transcribing. And when I write a story, I, I watch it as a movie in my head. And so to put a period at that, because I'm rambling for you, is that is it. That is the third chapter. And and I want to take each one of those books and turn them into either TV series or film. And having worked in that world my whole life, I know how the whole machine works. So it's really just what's the, what's the uh, quote I just... Gave uh, Seneca said, uh, "Luck is when opportunity meets preparation, mm-hmm. and that's that's when my luck will hit at that convergence." You know, you talk about you feel like you're just transcribing, you know, just coming out from you. I've seen interviews of you know songwriters and some big names, and you know the question always gets is, "Where do those songs come from?" And some of them they have to really work. I mean, it's amazing how many hits took two or three years to write that song. And then other hits took literally 20 minutes in the recording studio and it was kind of done. You know, for you, do you, are you working to get a story or do you have so many stories that you just can't keep up with what's coming out of you? Like, how is it for you? Well, there are enough stories. All I've got to do, all I've got to do is listen. All I've got to do is observe. Tammy's friend, always giggling at me because we'll be in a restaurant and I'll be sitting there talking to her and invariably I'll do a little bit of this. She goes, what are you, oh, I know what you're doing. You're listening to the conversation next to you. <laughs> yeah, because I'm getting little bits and pieces of, you know, I, I listen to the pattern of way people talk because good dialogue, you know, we don't talk. We shorthand a lot of our conversations. And so I'm always working that into it. But I think it's also a combination of, it's paying attention. I wrote a, a, an opening scene. It literally w- was one page. I wrote this in uh, May of 1997, it's an opening scene. And, and the title of the book came to me like that, and it was called Seduction at Daybreak. And I wrote the scene in one take, and I didn't do anything, and I just, I, I, I went, wow, that's pretty good. And a little while later, I typed it up, and I stuck it in an envelope, in, that, in this white folder that I call creative writing, and I've kept it for decades. And I set it aside. And one day when I'm in New York, decades later, and Tammy said, and we're having one of the conversations about what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to write. And I was finishing Knuckle Down. She goes, what are you going to do next? I said, well, I've got this folder of opening scenes that I've never done anything with. And I've got little, I've got characters that I would do a, a, a little short bio on. I'm like, I like this guy's character. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I would just stick in this thing. So she goes, well, let me see. And she's flipping through it. She pulls out Seduction at Daybreak. And she got to the end. She goes, oh, my God, you got to write this one. And so I wrote that. This was I released that three years ago under the title The Poser. And I changed the title only because 
the ma- the method of murder had become this person of interest that posed his victims. Mm. He posed his vic- victims a certain way. He was of a profession. I don't want to give any spoilers away. He was of a profession that he posed as one thing, and he lived in Hollywood in a land of posers. So it just all kind of fit together. Came together. And it, Love it. Yeah, and it took me two years to write that. But in two years, we moved, We got married. We moved three times, and my mother passed. So, uh, or, or right about that time. So uh, that's the reason it took so long. But that came out, I, I released that last year, and it, it has been my most successful yet. And that's, again, just as a self-published. So I know there's a number of viewers, listeners that are actually either writers, some of them published a book or want to, uh, would, you know, that's kind of one of the dreams. And some of them are into that space, you know, self-help. Let me write in my area of expertise. You're, you know, you write stories. Um, and I don't know if there's a similarity or what's the crossover other than your writing. But if you're giving somebody advice who, and, and I know some of our listeners for sure love writing stories, have not yet published. So just within the context of that, is there some fundamental guidance you could give somebody, you know, in terms of focus, staying in dreams, working at it? What, what are some of the, you know, what are some sound bites of advice you would give somebody who wants to be a writer like you? Anything? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Um, and, and Tammy keeps telling me to write a nonfiction book on, on that exact same thing. She goes, because Patrick, here's the thing. For some bizarre reason, and is probably why why I'm not as prolific as as I'd like to be, is that I always think, oh, everybody knows that. I'll like blah, say to Tammy, blah blah blah. She, I go, everybody knows that. She goes, no, they don't. I don't know that. Ten other people don't know that. I'm like, well, everybody knows how to start a book. No, they don't. And so, my best piece of advice. And by the way, whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction. And I have one nonfiction book that has that is burned in my psyche. And I've been percolating on it for about 10 years. And I, I told myself I wouldn't write it until my mother passed because it would have offended her. Um, because she was a very, very strong Christian. And it takes liberties with some of that belief system. We can drill out on that later. But my advice is this. First of all, and this is going to sound a little Pollyanna, but don't let anybody tell you that you can't do something. Mm. That's some, excuse my language, bullshit. Yeah. If you have the desire, you don't have to be good yet. You can let the good catch up with you. But I'll tell you how you get good faster than not. By doing it on day one mm-hmm. and then day two. And day three, and I'm not talking about, now watch this, Patrick. I'm not saying sit down for eight hours a day, five days a week. Don't, don't do that. That You're not going to like that. You're not going to stick with it. But can you, do, can you do an hour a day? Can you do 15 minutes? Mm-hmm. Get a journal, get a pen, get that book that's going to stick with you, good paper, and an expensive pen. Make the commitment to really drop the dime on that because it's going to be in your hands for a long time. And just carve out, set your walk, 15 minutes and do that twice a week. Now, what's going to happen is you're going to find if you're really meant to do this, 
and you are any good, those 15 minutes will evaporate into 30 and you won't even realize it. And those two days will become four and it'll it'll seem like effortless. There's a there's an author called Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi, Russian. The book is called Flow. And the theory of flow is that when you're in the middle of something, whether it's writing or painting or woodworking or yachting or whatever you do, mm -hmm. gardening, when you're in that moment, time evaporates and you're so completely absorbed at that moment that you have no idea of how long. But when you step out of it, oh, I've got to go do this. I got to pick up the kids. I got to. Then you're out of the flow. Yeah. And you can train yourself to get in the flow. And I've trained myself to get in the flow. And it really does. You have to designate a room, designate a time. This is really key. This is key. Pick it. I'm looking because there's a clock on the wall. Pick a specific set of time. If you work eight to five, get up at six or five or do it after work or do it when the kids are to bed. Do it at 10 at night. But designate that time and hold it sacred. If you don't hold it sacred, no one else will. I've learned this the hard way. Put a sign on your door. I don't care what it is. And you go, if it's 15 minutes or two hours, that's my sacred creative time. And stick to it. And people will, people will after a while, people go, oh, he's serious. And then just practice it. It's like, are you, do you still, do you play golf? I'm trying to remember if we uh, played, ever, no, we played I, golf together. I've, I've, no, we haven't. I, I quit. I gave up golfing for a number of reasons, but I was a golfer. Um, I'm actually going to be golfing a little later this summer, but no, I'm not a golfer. Okay, but you do know enough about golf. Oh, I know. I, you know, I golfed you, a lot in my day. Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah, and if you're if you don't swing a club, if you only swing in a club every few months when you when the guys come into town and you go out and bang one around are you going to get any better no no not unless you're a some kind of natural athlete so it's the same thing with writing yeah you're just going to get better with time yeah, yeah totally i got it so when we look at where you are today and you know is and, I, and a couple things you know number one on the radio you know technology's changed we've just been through a pandemic things got locked down that opened up technology when we look at what's happening in the world of, you know, YouTube and any other number of platforms that are out there, uh, everybody's, uh, I guess, a, a producer, a director, a presenter. What has that changed the game for you somewhat, or does it open up more opportunities? How do you view what's going on? As like at the, you know, sometimes I look at the world and I go, I don't even know where to start, given what's happening. And uh, what is it for you of being in it the way you are? Well, it's funny because. Uh... I see this major proliferation of podcasting. And I've been talking about podcasting since probably early 2000. Uh, back when I was hanging out with a bunch of high tech guys, uh, it was right around 2000, 2004. And we were talking about developing a podcast when there were no podcasts, uh, or, or actually uh, one of the MTV jocks, I think, may have actually coined that phrase. And so, the only reason I didn't toy with it was because I was still on radio. So I thought, I don't really need to do this. But I know that later in life, when podcasts started taking off, I kind of, I would encourage people to do it, but I would step back. Don't ask me why. Because I'm like, well, it's just radio, but, but talking to yourself. And then since I've watched the growth of podcasting, and, and they're, they're saying it's going to continue to explode and double and triple and so forth. And then you see guys like Joe Rogan who gets this hundred million dollar deal with Spotify, you realize, 
okay, I think it's time for me to really jump both feet into the game. And when you think about it, and this isn't tooting a horn, but like if I'm not doing podcasting, then you know, what am I doing? So yeah, I have launched, you know, I started off with the Naked Monday, which was a fun little thing about creative types. But then uh, I would watch the trends of it and I go, it's not really taken off like I wanted. And I'm talking to Tammy one day and I said, you know what, I learned a long time ago that sometimes you got to spoon, I don't mean this in a demeaning way, you have to spoon feed people as to what you are doing. And I said, look, I write thrillers, I love thrillers, I hang out with thriller writers. I love thriller movies. I'm going to name a podcast, The Thriller Zone. (laughs) And I launched that on a Friday. And two weeks to the day later, I had three times the followers than I had in the other podcast that I'd worked on for 10 months. So I knew I was onto something. And uh, I mean, even tomorrow, I'm doing a podcast with uh, a prolific espionage thriller writer. And here's a really great key is I'm learning. I've got a few really tasty ones queued up. They all want to talk about what they love to do. And I love to talk. And I'm pretty good at getting people to talk. And so I'm like, it's just going to be a natural. And I'm really looking forward to taking off. Well, yeah. Did that answer your question? Yeah, of course. I I think that it opened up opportunities. You know, when you talk about a podcast and it's interesting is that, you know, there was a point where you go, why, you know, I've asked myself, why am I podcasting? You know, why do that? And, And there's so many podcasts out there. And as I talked to people, I came to a realization that, uh, I, I would ask people, have you have you ever listened to Joe Rogan? Have you listened to Tim Ferriss? Like, I mean, two of the biggest names in the industry and literally it, with millions of followers and uh, they had never heard that podcast before, yet they had their favorite podcast. And I thought to myself, wow, there's room for a whole lot of people in this space, given how many people are on this planet and the varying degrees of interest. I mean, you you nailed it. You talked, you literally you know, got into this world called, you know, uh, the Thriller Podcast, uh, if that was the name I heard you say. It was really about Thriller. The Thriller thriller Zone, yeah. Yeah, Thriller Zone. So it's really about Thriller movies, Thriller books, Thrillers. It's just about Thrillers. I've got an interest in Thrillers and I'm kind of going, see, that would attract me, right? So it's always about stay true to who you are, stay true to your brand, and then you uh, inevitably attract the followers that align with that interest. So that's kind of the cool part about podcasting. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, I'm very, very fortunate in that I've been able to make friends with some really prolific thriller writers. I bet. I don't want to drop names, but the one of them is going to be on the show in two weeks, probably one of the biggest in the industry. And she, I love her work. Uh, okay, Meg Gardner. And then um, <laughs> there's a gentleman by the name of Don Winslow, who uh, we're hoping to be able to have a podcast later this year when he releases a new book. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping and praying that'll happen because he is like, this is funny, Patrick. I'm going to tell you this very, um, a very uh, disclosing thing for me to say, which I don't generally do. And, it, and it's this. I hung out with rock stars and country music stars. I've been in a lot of TVs and films hanging out with mega stars and you know i might have a couple of photographs i don't think i have any autographs maybe a couple because it never really met them but don winslow is one of those guys that i met and i'm like all right i want your autograph which is crazy for me because it's just a signature yeah and uh i because i'm in so 
I'm so enamored with his talent because it's it's so specific and it's so huge. And he's a monster rock star in the thriller world. And, uh, you know, I, I just stand in awe like I would like other celebrities. And he's the most down to earth, humblest, normal guy you'll ever meet in your life. So it's yep. it's a win win. But it's just such an interesting, you know, you know, Stephanie and and I, you know, as you know, we've worked with, you know, professional athletes oh, yeah. and you know, around the world, Olympic athletes. Just this past weekend for our wedding anniversary, we had. Olympic athletes hanging out because we know them. And you know something? I don't think I have a picture with them other than maybe them uh, at the barbecue or in the pool. Like it's like I so it's interesting that you being and and because of that, we also had exposure to many famous people. But I it's interesting that you're built that way, too, where you're going to go. They just really are normal people who have exceptionally great talent and as impressive as they are as what they do. I hold you, for example, as exceptionally awesome at what you do. Like, I I love the fact that I was able to get you on the show because of what you've accomplished in your life. You know, the, the whole context of seemingly ordinary achieving extraordinary, that's the journey. That's what really is a statement of the of the person and who they are. And what they do is kind of an aside from that. And, and I don't know if I'm explaining that quite right, but I'm, I'm along that same lines as you. There are a couple of people that if I got a chance to get a picture with, uh, I don't know, Stephen King, I'd go, yeah, he's a cool cat. Like, he's just weird enough that yeah. I would want to say I know that guy. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think, again, part of that was the way I grew up. So, you know, yeah. even in small town Lynchburg in North Carolina, you're, you're you know, you get up on stage when your dad is the head pastor. And I know that's not a great analogy. But the thing is, when you're on that stage at six years old, it's it becomes not a big deal. And so with time, it continues not to be a big deal. And and I'm not. um I'm not weirded out or whacked out or I don't really get particularly nervous. I mean, you can put me in front of 10,000 people and it's it's as though I'm sitting there talking to you and Stephanie. It doesn't really it doesn't really change. And do I get nervous in situations? Yeah, maybe a little bit. But uh, I I think it's being knowing who you are, being true to yourself, realizing that we're all doing the same thing in just a slightly different way than every other guy. And uh, and also not to I don't take it for granted. I don't I don't take anything for granted. I don't I don't take my voice, my talents, my beautiful wife, where we live. I never take it for granted because I've been in situations where I've seen it taken from people in the blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. I realize how life short is having, like I said, just lost now both parents. And you realize that how did I possibly get to this age and not have my parents around anymore? And mm. that's humbling and sad. Yeah. But I, I just think it's really key to keep your focus, be specific. I think specificity, you know, I could get into the whole law of attraction and all that stuff, but it, there's a whole lot of truth in just being specific, Yeah, being tenacious but not at the, the at the demise of other people around you. You know, treat people well along the way. I, I remember, I'm thinking to myself, I had a flashback when you were talking. I'm in New York City. We're doing a, a an engagement over in New Jersey. We're signing autographs on our headshots and giving away T-shirts at a radio station. And they lined up for 
tens of blocks <laughs> as far as I could see. Sure. Yeah. And each person that came up, I'm like, I made sure it was specifically to them and what's your name and thank you for coming. And, you know, it's just a photograph and it's just a T-shirt. But you listening every morning to the radio show means the world to me and saying that hundreds of times because that's how I've always felt. And that's how I'll always feel. And I think that's part of the mechanics, drive, sure. magic yep. of, and just be real for crying out loud. You and I both hung around some people in our past. We have friends that we've known in the past that kind of appeared to be one thing and, and were others. Yep. And um, sometimes you just go, man, just, just be you. Cause you're a pretty friggin' awesome person. <laughs> but, uh, not to be, you know, anyway. Okay. So listen, as we wind down, I must, you know, first off, seemingly ordinary, achieving extraordinary, David, you kill it. I mean, I just am so fascinated Thank by you. your story. I think it's awesome and uh, really happy and proud to know you because uh, I've been kind of following your journey a little bit and it's pretty cool. So uh, that's just some rapid fire that are very rarely rapid, but let's ask, you know, let's get these questions. Uh, let's get these questions out to you uh, in your creativity What's your favorite swear word? Uh, uh, motherfucker. Yeah. Well, that's actually, you don't get do. that one often, but that's a good one. That's a good one. If I go through the living room at night and I stub my toe, I know it's horrible, but I'm like, motherfucker. Yeah. Somehow it just makes me feel better. Yeah. 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 I think that's a good, that's a good one. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote? Uh, well, uh, I like the Seneca one that, uh, because yeah. luck is when preparation meets Yep. Um, opportunity. Yeah, opportunity. So when you think about what you do, this may be a really tough question. Uh, I'm sure it will be for you. If you weren't doing this, what do you think you'd be doing? Like if there was a dream of something else other than a writer, other than a producer, other than an actor, other than all the things that you do in that particular industry, what would you be doing, do you think? Wow, that's a great question. Uh, so let me clarify this. So if if if... I just can't do any of those things. And I have the financial wherewithal to just get up in the morning sure. and do whatever I want. Whatever context you want is just fine. If you aren't doing what you're doing, what would you do? I'd probably paint again. Hmm. I love, I love, I love big canvases and, and, and colorful paints. And I just, oh, I, it's been decades since I've painted, but I love that. That's cool. If heaven exists, what do you want to hear God say when you get to the gates? Oh, this is from Actors Workshop. I love this. You did pretty good. Come on in. Let's have a beer. <laughs> Let's have a beer. That's the best part. <laughs> yeah. Um, room, your room, your desk, or your car. What do you clean first? My room, my desk, or my... Oh, my car. Yeah. My car is almost always immaculate. My office is I have wonderful intentions and what you see behind me is pristine, but if I swung the camera around, it would be a little disarray. Kind of like a grenade went off. Uh, now, what kind of car? Are you, a, are you a car guy? Are you like a sports car guy? Are you a sedan guy? What are you, what are you driving these days? We are currently driving a 2021 Range Rover Velar, uh -huh. which is not like the great big HSC, yeah. and it's yep. not even as beefy as the Rover Sport, but it's um, 
it's sleek and it, it's low and it's sleek and it's just sexy as hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if we could, if I had a house closer to the water and I had a four-car garage, mm -hmm. I would have a 65 Mustang 2 plus, 64 and a half 2 plus 2 <laughs> pony package Mustang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have uh, Steve McQueen's Bullet Camaro. I would probably have a vintage somewhere in the mid to late 30s Chevy pickup truck with the big bubble fenders and the the rounded window just for shits and giggles. Yeah. And then for just pure sex appeal, it would be a toss between an older, say, late 80s Porsche with a target top or mm. maybe something completely exotic like uh, James Bond, uh, Aston Martin, right yeah. rather right around the mid to late 60s. Okay, so here's a question for you. What is the character in your book? Is it Pat Riley? What does she drive? Pat Norelli. Norelli. Drives a Chevy uh, Corvette. Oh, okay. With so, the biggest, baddest engine. Yeah, she's okay. a gearhead. So you got her You got her fired up. So, okay, well, that's good. Yeah. Okay, so do, do you have a favorite tune? Being a radio guy with all, I mean, I don't know. Do you have a favorite tune? Singular tune? Wow. That's like having a gaggle of yeah. kids and going, which one's your favorite? Yeah. Um, I will admit that I love um, anything by Coldplay because that yep. was playing when I met my wife. Fantastic. I've always been a fan of U2, yeah. like Joshua Tree yeah. era. There is no better album probably on the planet than Hotel California by the Eagles. Yeah. And if I want to just jam out like a, I would listen to Boston, probably any album, but probably Don't Look Back. <laughs> oh, yes. I love them all. So great, great choices. Now, another tough question before we start to really wind it down. Do you have a favorite movie? Oh, man. It's funny because my buddy Sean O'Rourke and I just did the top 10 favorite movies, which is, Patrick, if you and I were to have this discussion and maybe we, maybe what I'll do is bring you onto my thriller <laughs> zone and, and we'll, we, I know you're a thriller seeker, so I can probably work that in. We did our top 10 and it was nearly impossible. All right, here's what I'm going to say. Well, my number one favorite was Field of Dreams because of a very poignant moment in it that reminds me of my dad. And it's about tossing baseball. And it's, excuse me, it's purely sentimental. And it's just, it's not the greatest movie, but it's just purely sentimental. But if I had to pick an all around best movie of all time, it would probably be The Godfather. There you number go. one. Okay. How about you? Which you, you know, I on, guess, me, what's your favorite? Tune? I've got many, but one that always comes up for me is uh, Shawshank Redemption, and uh, just oh. it's just it's just a great movie, and uh, so I can always go back to it. And I mean, then there's some other classics like Top Gun, that kind of stuff. But really, Shawshank Redemption, I just love the quality of the acting, the storyline, everything that went into it. The, you know, there was a, there was a, it's not a thriller, but there's lots of suspense in it, you know, and uh, so it kind of hit all my buttons that I like. And I'm, a, and I'm, like I say, I like suspense, thriller kind of stuff. So that actually worked for me. That and one what's was a good the line. Thriller. If you're, if you're not living, you're dying. Yeah. Something like that. I don't remember the line. Yeah. Yeah. And favorite album. If you, ha if you're stranded on an al on an island with Stephanie, you can have your favorite drink, mm -hmm. your favorite book. And one favorite CD. This is old radio stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me those three. I don't, you know, my favorite drink, you know, anything on the rocks, you know, 
I'm, I'm, I'm an on the rocks kind of guy, you know, that way it's simple. It just speaks to simplicity. I don't like complicated drinks and I'm not a big sugar fan. So stuff that's sweet doesn't, you know, so put it on the rocks and I'm good with it from a drink point of view, you know, from a, from a, I've got some old stuff that I really like listening to, but if, do I have a favorite? I would have to go with something, anything really, not anything. Some old Beatles, and to your point, some uh, old U2 would always would always really light me up. I, I enjoy immensely. What was the third question you asked me? Drink? Favorite book. You, you got one book. Uh, you know, I'm a Stephen King fan, so I would probably just about anything from Stephen King. I got turned on to Stephen King when he wrote The Thing, and then I just read everything. So if you're a Stephen King fan, you would probably, I'd be, I'm going to be real curious. And I never asked you this because I try not to do that, but have you read any of my books? Um, I started, no, not completely. Okay. If you were going to do that, I would say read The Poser. And if you liked it, then read the sequel, The Imposter. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I don't think you're going to go wrong with that. Okay. Well then I will, I promise you I will. And then I'll even give you a review of it. Uh, un unsolicited, Thank you. unsolicited by the way, although I do, I am lined up to watch the movie on Netflix. I tried to get to it last night, but Stephanie flew out. So I didn't get to it. And I wanted to watch it with her because she wanted to watch it with me. And I go, what the hell? How come we haven't watched this movie yet? And, uh, she goes, well, you That's didn't awesome. tell me to get it. Like I didn't know. And so anyways, so there you go. Well, I'm going to tell you this. Don't watch it late at night if you've had a big meal because it is languorous and it is on the it is quiet. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's it's not a it's not a born identity kind of movie. I didn't have the budget for that. Damn. But boy, if, if you want to if you want to talk about a really good life lesson. Poignant lesson, you're going to get it. OK, OK, I'm going to I will. I promise I'm going to follow up. Final question. What are you grateful for, David? My wife. Mm. I am great. I'm grateful for her. Uh, it was a toss up in my head, just which is why I hesitate. I'm so grateful I met someone so incredibly awesome so late in life. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine going through life without her. And, and the one thing I'm as equally grateful for is my health. I, I never take that for granted. I work very hard every day to keep it right in tune. Uh, it, I, I spare no expense in trying to keep that on par. And I think if you got your health and the love of a good woman, you got everything. I agree 100%. I'm always grateful for my wife. I'm also grateful for uh, being able to reconnect, having you on the show. So thank you so much. And uh, look forward to uh, keeping in touch and uh, staying updated with what's going on with David Temple and the thrillers and the books and the movies. So thanks very much for joining me today on The Everyday Millionaire. Thanks, David. Thank you, Patrick. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.